Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Thank you for tuning in to the Dementia Research podcast, where we discuss careers, science and research. This week, we're going to explore neural activity and some of the great research being undertaken by our three guests. I'm Dr. Mike Daniels, and I'm delighted to be guest hosting today's show. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow working for Dr. Barry McColl in the UK Dementia Research Institute at the University of Edinburgh. My research focuses on the role played by microglial cells and the immune system in the progression and pathogenesis of dementias such as Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but that's enough about me. It's time to meet our guests. So I am delighted to welcome Jack Bray from the University of Aberdeen, Tabitha Broadbelt and Soraya Mefter, both from the University of Edinburgh. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hello. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, and let's get started with some introductions because we've already heard enough about me. And uh, Tabitha, can I start by asking you to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Tabitha. Um, I'm a third year PhD student in Suhang Wang's group at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, my research has been on understanding learning and memory impairments in a mouse model of amyloid pathology. Great, beautifully succinct. Uh, Jack, can you go next? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Jack Bray. I'm also a third year PhD student um, at the University of Aberdeen. I work in the uh, Riedel Platt group um, studying EEG and behavioral abnormalities in different transgenic mouse models of dementia. Great. And Soraya, can you tell us about yourself? I don't know if I got the memo about being succinct. I had a little essay planned in my head. Um, so I'm Soraya Mefter. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow here at the UK Dementia Research Institute at the University of Edinburgh. I'm working with Jian Gan um, on kind of the neurophysiology of dementias. Um, but in my essay, I was um, thinking that basically I've been working in dementia research for nine years. So I started out my career as a neuropathologist at Eli Lilly, which is a pharmaceutical company, um, which really kind of inspired me to work in dementia research. So I then followed that on with a PhD at the University of Exeter in Bristol, which brought about my love for neural activity. So doing kind of the neurophysiology of um, dementias in well, at, at those universities. And so then I've moved on to doing my postdoc here, doing very similar things, but in different models. Ah, fascinating. So you, I did not realize that, that you, that you worked at Lilly and, and kind of come from the, the pharmaceutical roots. That's really interesting. Um, we're, gonna, we're gonna keep you on, Soraya, because you've drawn the short straw. And unfortunately for you, we're, we're without asking about your specific research just yet. Uh, for those listeners who don't work in neuroscience, uh, and I'm going to say arguably me, because as a neuroimmunologist, I tell all neuroscientists that I'm an immunologist uh, and therefore I don't possibly know anything about neuroscience. Uh, I'm going to ask you to introduce us very broadly to the concept of neural activity. I was thinking about this earlier and actually I started Googling to see what the Internet says, what I think it should be. And I've landed somewhere in the middle. So for me, neural activity starts with the fact that neurons are electrically excitable cells. So you can kind of treat neurons as electrical circuits in certain situations. 
So within the brain, neurons communicate via, well, using electricity. So this can either be at the synaptic level, so via the specialized connections between neurons, you can see small changes in electrical activity, or you can move up to the neuronal level where you see kind of larger changes, which we talk about as action potentials, or at a kind of more um, zoomed out view, you can also look at groups of neurons firing action potentials, which then gives you these neuronal oscillations that people talk about. So when we talk about neural activity, it's all about the electricity of the brain um, and different people can look at various different, different resolutions. So for example, I look at synaptic and neuronal activity. You can typically only look at that using more invasive techniques. Whereas you can look at the general neuronal oscillations, more kind of global activity using things like EEG, which is less invasive. I, I don't know if anyone's got any anything to add on that. The one thing I was going to ask in, in slight addition to that, we're here um, with the Dementia Researcher podcast. Uh, and so I suppose we're probably going to come onto this with all of your specific pieces of research. But what's, what happens to neural activity in dementia? I mean, I can I can start on that one. Um, I mean, neural activity, depending on what kind of dementia model you're looking at, does very different things. So, for example, if you're looking in models of amyloidopathy, so that's one of the earlier pathologies we see in Alzheimer's disease, you tend to see a hyperactivity. So neurons are firing more action potentials or you see these oscillations change in kind of frequency. I'm trying not to use too many complicated terms, but they get faster or slower with the way that this electrical communication is kind of occurring. So that's for amyloidopathy. For kind of other pathologies, you can see silencing. Um, there's some very nice work from some of the other UK Dementia Research Institute labs that have shown that actually you get like a reduction in neural, neuronal activity. Um, in models of telepathy, at least to my knowledge. So you get a, a wide array of different brain regions doing different things. So some will go up, some will go down. Yeah, so it's quite a broad question, which is why I was laughing. Complicated. It needs yeah. a lot of people to research it. And while we're talking then of, of people's research and what happens to neural activity in, in dementia, uh, why don't we learn a little bit about each of your specific research interests? So. Um, maybe we can start with Jack. Can you tell us about your research? I typically work with uh, a mouse model called the RTG4510, which is a, a mouse model of tauopathy. So this is where it has an increase in um, tau proteins that build up in the brain over time. And this kind of models frontotemporal lobe dementia. So what I do is I look on a kind of global scale, as um, Soraya mentioned, looking at the EEG in these mice. Uh, one thing we're trying to do is to kind of spot any kind of early biomarkers um, of the disease in these mice, so comparing them to uh, mice that don't have this buildup of tau, uh, and trying to see if there's anything kind of that happens specifically early in the disease, which we could then translate into the human population to try and spot the symptoms earlier than any kind of um, memory deficits that you may see in, in dementia. My work was funded through the um, EQUIPPED project, which stands for European Quality in Preclinical Data. And so the aim of it is an uh, innovative uh, medicines initiative, which was aimed at trying to understand 
how we can improve the robustness and reliability of results in preclinical neuroscience. And so as part of that project, many different sites um, all tried to uh, run the same experiment in their, in their own way. And then also we tried to harmonize the factors uh, and ran it again to see whether we could improve the reproducibility of EEG findings uh, across sites. Yeah, and, and I guess kind of two interesting things in that is I find that the, the kind of biomarker field and dementia really interesting because a lot of it is obviously about things like blood biomarkers for early detection, early diagnosis. I find it really interesting. I've never really considered the concept of early neural activity essentially changes as more of a, a kind of early detection tool. Um, that sounds really interesting. What, what, what we'll do is we'll, we'll move around and, and just get a kind of snapshot of everyone's research. Uh, and then maybe we can talk a little bit more broadly uh, about maybe some of the themes that are coming out of this. Um, so let's let's move on then um, to Tabitha. So can you tell us a bit about your research? Um, yeah, I picked up on two things from Jack's research that I think were kind of similar in that we're looking at, so I'm looking at a broader view of neural activity because I'm focusing more on the outcome, their behavior, do they remember, have they learnt? Um, and also trying to look at sort of earlier markers. So I've been looking into um, different mechanisms that modulate the learning experience, not just focusing on naive animals learning a single task, but also uh, looking at how wider learning experience can affect their memory. So introducing um, novelty uh, or also how a prior um, experience already in a task can then affect uh, later learning. Uh, and so to do that, I run a lot of behavioral tasks and then I pair that with pharmacological agents to look at the underlying systems. Uh, and then I follow up checking the level of amyloid pathology in the mouse model that I work with, which is the APP NLGF knock-in mice. Another mouse model uh, of, of Kind of neurodegenerative disease dementia, but, but this time one driven by amyloid rather than tau then, which is which is interesting. Let's move on maybe and then and then we can bring back there's a couple of things I think would be really interesting to pick up on with the two of you. Uh, and let's finally then move to Soraya and ask you to tell us a little bit about your research. So I think actually um, whilst Jack and Tabitha were talking, so for my PhD work, I was working with the same model that Jack was working with. So the TG4510 model of telepathy, looking at how synaptic and neuronal dysfunction occurs at various different time points. So I think kind of similar work, but using different techniques. So now during my postdoctoral work, I'm carrying on using a technique that I learned during my PhD, which is using in vivo wholesale patch clamp electrophysiology. And so this basically involves recording from a single neuron within the living animal's brain whilst it's still alive. So it's a very difficult technique, very low throughput, and provides a lot of very powerful information that we can use to try and understand synaptic dysfunction in the kind of intact system along with you know, neuronal dysfunction as well. Um, and I'm doing that currently in the APPPS1 mouse model of amyloidopathy. So that's also why I was laughing because between the two, I've kind of done the talpathy and now I'm doing amyloidopathy. And, um, but we'll probably move on to some other models as well in the near future. So we've got 
people are using three different mouse models, but um, Soraya spanning both of the mouse kind of themes that the, the other two work. And also we've got from, from the single cell neural activity recording up to the, the whole brain, the EEG, and then, and then finally to Tabitha with kind of what the effect of that different neural activity on the behavior is. Um, so some pretty pretty slick curating of panelists, I would say, on the, on this dementia researcher podcast. Speaking of of what we've been talking about, I guess a little bit briefly in terms of animals, and this this is something obviously uh, might be a little bit biased because um, all three of you do a lot of your research on mice, uh, and also I personally do a lot of my research on mice. Um, but I suppose there are, there are definitely uh, upsides and downsides to, to neural activity in dementia in mice. So can anyone come in on, on, on how similar the changes, no matter what mouse model you use, how similar uh, the changes in neural activity in dementia are between the, or, or maybe for Tabitha, probably better, um, the behavior potentially. So e each of your individual expertise, how similar they are in the mouse model, versus in humans, or if it's not known, which bits of it aren't known. Uh, and, and tell you what, I'll, I'll go around you and and apologies in advance, everyone, because I, I actually didn't prepare any of the panelists for this question. I've come up with this entirely in advance, so I've given them very little chance here. Uh, but Jack, why don't you, if, if you, what's the kind of, how much do we see change in your mouse model versus what we know changes in humans that live with dementia? Well, one of the main, um... Uh, symptoms, I guess, of uh, neural activity in human patients uh, would be is termed a kind of classical slowing of the EEG. So essentially, all of the all of the activity shifts into kind of lower frequencies. Um, as mentioned before, with certain models, you you do see sometimes this slowing, or sometimes even with some of the APP models, you do see a, a kind of a shift into the higher frequency, so a, a, a faster. Um, neuroactivity, I guess. And this is, I guess, one of the, the big issues with kind of preclinical translational research is that we are working with models of the disease um, and not obviously the disease itself. So personally, in the, in the TG4510 models, we do see a, a kind of a slowing of the EEG, which uh, is quite nice, um, quite translatable. But um, Again, it's only kind of modeling the tau pathology. And as we know, typically we, we kind of get amyloid and tau pathology both in the buildup in the, in the human population. So, yeah, and I guess, and obviously you're only, you're only modeling um, essentially the genetic, even if you were modeling a human disease, you're modeling the, the kind of 1% uh, genetic yeah, the, side. The familial side of things. Um, which, which again, you know, like is, is a caveat that, that we all take on board when, when we do this kind of research. So, um, that's really interesting. So let's let's go around in the same order that we went in before, um, and then come up to to Tabitha if you've got any kind of insight into the the sort of behavioural changes, maybe the early changes that you were kind of alluding to earlier. You see in in the mice, and and whether that relates to, to what we see in humans. I'll touch upon something that Jack mentioned before, which is the difficulty in translating from the models that we have into the humans and I think for behavior there is a particular point where a lot of the research that is done with Alzheimer's patients you can ask them questions they check a lot of their episodic memory do you know what year it is where you are 
And unfortunately, it's a lot harder to ask a mouse to answer that. The sort of translatability, you have to get a little bit more creative um, and try and see if they remember where they've placed um, certain objects or where they've seen it before um, and where they, if they remember being in this environment before. So, so Jack, I'm also sort of only amyloid, so I'm only getting that preclinical aspect. And I think what we see with a lot of the amyloid models is it takes uh, a while and quite strong pathology to start then seeing the same kind of um, behavioral and, and memory impairments that you would then translate to patients with Alzheimer's. So that loss of being able to remember what you've seen before. And, and is that like as a specific example of the sort of things that, that you do, you have mice and, and you ask them to remember where they put something or? Yes, so I had um, one of the tasks that I did, which is very fun. Um, its full name is the Appetitive Delayed Matching to Place task. I always called it the Cheerio task because um, that is what the mice have to search for is a small piece of Cheerio that's hidden in a sandwell, um, which is within a large arena. And then um, every day we give them a new location where to find this uh, Cheerio reward, uh, which is sort of similar to the kind of everyday spatial memory tasks that an Alzheimer's patient might need to do. Where have I put my keys today? Where is the Cheerio hidden today? Um, and then make it a little bit harder for them and give them some uh, decoy wells to check if they properly remembered or if they're just digging everywhere. And so then to, to kind of finally round this off then in terms of asking about how everyone's individual research on, on maybe amyloid or mouse models of, of dementia relates to what we see in humans in the context of neural activity. Um, Soraya, what, what do you see in, in your mouse models uh, of dementia and how does that relate um, and how much do we know about it? So I think I'm going to start with a little anecdote that I forgot to say at the start. Um, so when we can think of neural activity, you can kind of imagine a football stadium. So if you were standing outside the football stadium with a microphone, that would roughly be similar to what EEG is and the supporters are going to be your neurons. So if you wanted to listen to what each individual person is saying, you, you wouldn't have a chance of hearing it. Whereas you could probably hear when a goal was scored or some other kind of large scale events. So we can look at EEG in patients um, and you get a rough idea of some of the larger events or the kind of when a person's thinking their oscillations look like this. But in humans, we really can't look at the underlying individual single cell activity and even more so the synaptic activity because it's such a kind of fine resolution. So, well, you can look at neuronal activity, but it's only in epilepsy patients, for example, where it's a super invasive procedure um, and it's not gonna be anywhere close to being used in dementia. So I guess at my level, um, I see various different changes in kind of synaptic transmission, neuronal activity in general. I could talk about various different finities, but I won't. Um, but we don't really know how that would relate to the human condition exactly because we can't measure it, measure it in human patients. 
So we can kind of infer that perhaps this hyperactivity or this slowing then leads to these EEG changes that Jack's seeing and that we see in the patients. And that's kind of the link that I'm starting to you know, work on is what is the actual individual neuronal synaptic correlates that then perhaps underpin these changes in the kind of oscillations, EEG activity that we can me measure. So my stuff's all inferred, but <laughs> very difficult to measure in humans. Yeah, man, that's really cool. I love that. That analogy is great. I, I was might I might borrow that for um if if I ever talk about uh, bulk versus single cell RNA sequencing, it's a kind of similar concept, I guess. Of like, I love it. Yeah, when a goal is scored, like that's when everything's in sync and everyone gets louder, and then you see it. But I guess if you had equal home and away fans and a goal was scored on one end, then half of them would get quieter and the other half would get louder. And the actual signal might not change. Maybe you wouldn't even know. Depends how rubbish the fans are. Don't get that at Tyne Castle up here at Hearts, I'll tell you that. I don't know if we're allowed to mention I was going to say, that's a Scotland reference. But... Particular, <laughs> um, particular, very, very local references, um, Edinburgh references. That's brilliant. So we, we've talked then uh, about, about the way that each of our individual pieces of research link to, to changes in neuroactivity uh, in both mice and versus humans. And, and I wanted to now kind of go, go back a little bit and pick up on something that, that Jack mentioned as part of his research. Um, and that's the kind of reproducibility side of it. Uh, and, and I think that's really interesting and, and super important. And I think I, I wasn't aware of, of kind of quite how much there is in terms of getting this sort of stuff off the ground because on the face of it, you, you maybe don't get any exciting new results if all you do is say, hey, we see the same thing and guess what? We see it in five different places in five different countries. But how important is that? Like, is it is it worth looking at if you don't see it in five different places in five different countries? So um, I don't know, Jack, I don't know what your, what your experience has been with this kind of cross-site reproducibility aspect of it. Like, have you been able to, to get things more reproducible? And, and what's your overall view on reproducibility in your field? Is it is it improving? Is it in a relatively good state? Uh, what was your kind of, what's your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, reproducibility is kind of um, a, a massive topic for science. I mean, if something isn't reproducible, then there's a, a serious doubt cast upon whether it's an actual um, statistically significant finding or that kind of thing. So my kind of project stemmed from uh, a couple of years ago. There was lots of publications about the lack of reproducibility in science in general. And I think there was up to kind of 75% of researchers had failed to reproduce a scientific finding. Um, and that's not really specific to neuroscience, preclinical neuroscience, it's just kind of across the board. So there's, it's obviously um, something we really need to kind of take on board that we, um, we should be kind of able to reproduce things, specifically with the, our kind of EEG side of the reproducibility um, debate. We actually found that in general, the uh, robustness and reproducibility of EG findings was quite good. The kind of the main factors involved, I guess, is that uh, there's no kind of standard EEG recording device. There's no standard electrodes. There's no standard uh, analysis tools. That's, everything is kind of idiosyncratic to um, each lab that's we think is where the majority of the irreducibility comes from but yeah certainly um one of the biggest 
factors we found to uh, improve reproducibility within science or preclinical neuroscience is mainly on the reporting side. Obviously, it's very hard to reproduce a study if you're missing some key factors of that study. And even still, I'm kind of reading papers that people will not report the, even something as big as like the sex of the animal used or the time of day of the experiment or recording device use or even like the color of the maze used. These things all do have an effect on the outcome of the of the results and so it's really it's really down to, to the researchers to to publish all the pertinent information so that someone else could reproduce it if possible one of the issues is that um the publication bias essentially mm. what that means is that it's very hard to publish a negative or a null result um you kind of need a statistically significant finding in order to get published so this as you were as you were mentioning it's very hard to to even publish reproducibility studies because they uh it's not going to be like um yeah accepted in journals because it's not interesting enough and that i think is is one of the big issues uh and this drives the kind of reproducibility debate yes yeah and i suppose we hope that um Things like uh, having performers when you submit your paper, like you have to give all your methods in, in the detail. And you would hope, I suppose, that that when things go to publication, the reviewers say you haven't given enough detail in your methods. Um, we could do plenty of podcasts on issues of publication, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but but I don't know whether, because um, obviously re- reproducibility is is by by no means something that's confined to to you know EEG research and mouse models and um like you were kind of alluding to with with things that can obviously be particularly sensitive to that sort of thing is things like behavior and things like the color of your maze and the time of day and things like very very sensitive readouts i don't know if if, tabitha if you've got any experience um with uh, what you think reproducibility and behavior is like are there any tips for anybody that's doing a lot of behavior research seeing as that's your your expertise in making sure you can do robust and reproducible studies? Um, Yeah, I do have a tip, which is that if they haven't put the information in their paper, then go ask them. (laughs) Or if you see someone doing a similar task to you at a conference on their poster, like do go and ask them how they run it, because there will always be so many different variables that they won't talk about or they won't have thought that other labs would do differently Um, and that's definitely I think is one of the challenges in doing behavioral work um, because each mice is individual so you always get uh, a fair amount of variability within your experiments Uh, and then it's just a case of trying to optimize the experimental procedures for even tiny details such as how you hold the mice, how you handle the mice, that's often not put in the papers. And yeah, I think that's definitely a struggle in trying to reproduce uh, behavior experiments is that we're maybe not quite getting to the level of detail that we need to um, share with other researchers to help them reproduce our results. Is there anything that Soraya can add to that? 
I just wanted to add a little anecdote because the other day Tabitha and I were talking about, I think, behavioral reproducibility or something like that. And she was saying that one of her colleagues would hum the same song because she started humming that song the first time she did that experiment. And so, but I think it's the same with electrophysiology experiments as well and other ones, we're all very superstitious. So for me, I only wear certain necklaces by my rig. Um, and there are certain kind of quirks that maybe doesn't affect anything, but maybe it does. Maybe the song that you sing when you get in gives you a different mood when you're going into the room, which therefore means you handle the mice better. Or I, you know, approach my cell with more care or something. So there's a lot of other little things that I think could affect reproducibility. But I thought whilst we're on that topic, I should add that in. <laughs> you should maybe stick to evidence-based reproducibility. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought we, and, and I'm now going to go slightly off topic, uh, but we can come back on. Uh, it's not really off topic. It's reproducibility based, but it wasn't what I was going to say um, before. But if if something is so sensitive that you have to do it uh, in a very precise way at a very precise time, with, for example, you have to use the same equipment to to read out. If if you change your piece of equipment and you no longer see that effect, is the effect important enough for us to be studying this is always my question with this because my students will say oh you know go do this exactly the same way and i like to think that we should be researching things that are so stonking and robust that doesn't matter how you do it like you will still see that effect and i know that there's caveats of time of day especially if you're working on something circadian and could totally not see an effect at different times of day but i always think there are is an aspect of of like is it if you only see it when you fix every every other tiny independent variable is it that important i don't know if anyone's got any comments on that <laughs> yeah Tabitha. yeah i was going to comment purely from the the mice point of view is that obviously they don't have a lot of novelty that happens in their lives that you have to be careful that you don't know what you're doing and how that might be being perceived um, by them. But yeah, I do agree. There is a certain robustness. Yeah. That's a really good we point. Hope because, for results. because I suppose what, what I might say in, you know, in that monologue is like, oh, um, wearing the same perfume every day. If it's, you know, if you have to do such a minor thing as that, but to a mouse, the same perfume every day is probably, you know, the equivalent of somebody um, dumping a bin truck in your bedroom every morning. And you would probably have a very different day if somebody dumped a bin truck in your bedroom <laughs> every morning. Um, so that's a really good point. That put me in my place. <laughs> I, was, I was also going to add, I did see something recently where different experimenters were doing single cell electrophysiology recordings. And the different experimenters, I think, had statistically significant different results, but the result overall was the same, if that makes sense. So perhaps it was slightly lower or slightly higher, but actually the two experimenters were different from each other and they were using the same equipment in the same lab, et cetera, et cetera. But um, different people do things differently. Um, so it's kind of hard to narrow down those little changes. Okay, we'll, we'll go back to the thing that I was going to talk about uh, just, just before I went off, off topic slightly. And, and we were starting to talk about advice uh, and, and tips for people. 
and and being that a lot of the the listeners on this podcast will be early career researchers that might be um, at kind of undergraduate or masters or maybe early PhD stage, uh, and we're on this podcast really lucky to have three people that are that are either coming towards an end of a PhD or even have finished it. So I was hoping to to get from you guys some some kind of top tips, uh, and they can be specifically about your research, about the kind of things that you do. For example, when Tabitha was talking about the behaviour. Or, or actually just, just anything to, to test someone starting a PhD, maybe uh, in dementia research, and, and probably I say maybe specifically in, in doing this sort of thing. But as I said, anything, anything general will also be, also be very useful. So um, we'll, go, we'll go around in the order we have been going in and we went in before. Uh, so we'll start with you, Jack. My main kind of tip would be no one knows everything. And so... It's, I feel sometimes I feel like, I feel a bit silly asking for help or for advice on something. If it, it may show that I don't know it, so that maybe I should just do the research and find out for myself. But I think um, one of the biggest things I've learned is that asking for help is more valuable than kind of just trying to figure it out on your own. It's, um, and so, yeah, definitely, asking for help, seeking advice uh, from people who have been there before or who are doing a similar thing um, is definitely super valuable, I would say. Um, and uh, Tabitha? Um, yeah, sort of a similar thing. I would, don't be afraid to go up to people and talk about what you're doing or about what they're doing. I found that most people, whether they're PIs, or the admin staff um, are always really happy to help where they can or direct you to where they think you'll be able to get uh, more help and advice. Um, a lot of postdocs love the postdocs. <laughs> They're the best. Um, but yeah, the, generally people are really friendly. I still struggle to um, go up and ask people but I've generally always had really helpful advice or just a different way of viewing things from somebody that I wouldn't have expected, um, but they just come out with a question and it kind of changes your whole perspective on something that you were stuck on. Nice, thank you. Um, uh, and then I guess we'll, we'll go on to Sarai, who, who has completed her PhD and is now doing a postdoc, so might have even more, in fact, is one of the postdocs that Tabitha loves so much. Um, so she might have even more uh, information for us and tips and advice. I would completely agree with both Tabitha and Jack. If you ask someone quickly, uh, well, if you ask someone when you have a problem, sometimes they've already had that problem and you get it solved quickly. But I was thinking of trying to give a bit of advice that was slightly, you know, off the normal. And so what I would say is when you go to seminars, conferences, etc., um, is to ask a question, even if it means absolutely nothing to you. I like to ask questions a lot, but it took me a long time to build up to the point where I felt confident doing so. So it could be in a lab meeting or in, you know, a very small local seminar. If you ask your, if you ask one question, I guarantee at least five other people will be thinking that same question, because if it wasn't clear to you, then the speaker didn't make it clear enough. And it's on them, it's not on you, basically. Um, 
And I tend to find that that keeps me more engaged and I'm thinking about my question and then I ask it and actually I tend to get some very interesting responses. So that would be my one tip. I guess that's a that's such a confidence thing, isn't it? Um, I, I don't know when, you know, being me being kind of four odd years post PhD, I'm probably still not at the level where I, I can just go straight in and say, well, you haven't made it good enough to me. Um, and so I want to ask that question, Professor. Uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't start it like that. Um, no, I didn't mean literally say that. I mean, <laughs> as the kind of the reason I'm asking the question, that would be really bold. Um, okay, we're, we're kind of coming to the end of, I think, what I was hoping to talk about. And, and I've ended up, I've just realized, going a little bit off the topic of neural activity. So for a final point, I, I want everyone to, to come back to that. And, and I'll ask you all, uh, again, I guess, I guess we can go around unless anyone is, is happy to jump in on this, um, for, for what the kind of like the hot topic and the kind of real current and maybe the hot topic now or maybe what people are working on right now, what the biggest question is um, in, in specifically in, in your kind of aspect of your field. So for instance, Jack in kind of doing the EEG research, what, what's the thing that most people are, uh, are like really, really keen to learn? What's the hot topic and what are people desperately trying to work out? What's the most important thing they're trying to find? Uh, and, and again, I'll have to apologize because I've not uh, prepared our panelists for this question. Um, so they're all going to have to come up with it with the off the top of their heads. Um, so uh, if anyone wants to fly in on it, uh, if not, we're going to have to put Jack on the spot. Yeah, I mean, I guess the uh, the biggest thing for EG research at the minute is, uh, I mean, uh, we've kind of been at it for a while, but it's kind of understanding the um, how this this buildup of toxic protein does actually affect the, the neural activity, the underlying neural activity. Um, a big thing, obviously, at the moment, there's um, a lot of talk now about how the the amyloid hypothesis, as it were, um, is kind of dying. There was a paper published recently, uh, the death of the amyloid hypothesis. So I guess maybe that's kind of the, the biggest thing currently. It's kind of like working out why the amyloid hypothesis has failed and how maybe the tau uh, pathology would be a better a better model. Well done on, on such uh, being put on the spot. <laughs> Fortunately, Tabitha and Soraya have had a few extra seconds now to take some notes, thanks to Jack taking the hit for them. Uh, and Tabitha, what, what's the kind of big, big hot topic for you just now? Well, I think that there's two. I think that there's some really interesting research being done of people trying to adapt um, memory studies that work for both mice and humans. So you can compare those. And I think that's gonna be really interesting moving forwards, uh, looking at our models um, and Alzheimer's patients in these tasks. And then I think kind of coming maybe back a bit more to the neural activity, still trying to understand um, what's happening to these memories um, in the, the cells, are they being, lost um, or are they just losing the signal and the connections um, and I think that's going to be a really key question for the Alzheimer's community. 
Thank you. And and then finally, the person with the most experience and who we gave the most amount of time to come up with the answer to this question. So, so this is better be good, Soraya. <laughs> I was um, distracted by Jack saying about death to the amyloid hypothesis when me and Tabitha are both working in amyloid models. Sure, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think actually my one kind of thing that I think is a hot topic or what's really a big question in the field is this idea of kind of compensation from neuronal activity. So within these within dementia, we know that there's, well, within neurodegenerative diseases, we see this massive neuronal loss, but actually quite a lot of these changes occur before we see any changes in behavior. And so there's this idea that this, this kind of plasticity within networks or kind of homeostatic compensation, some kind of way that the neuronal signals are still being preserved, but we're losing connections, neurons, et cetera. And so trying to understand what physiological changes are going on that allows people to carry on going as they have been, um, whilst they have all these massive changes in the brain, I think would be super important to identify as something going forward for a biomarker treatment, et cetera. That's fantastic. And, um, and yeah, thank you very much, everyone. So it's, it, it's now time to end today's show. Um, and I'd like to give my massive thanks to guests, Jack, Soraya, and Tabitha. Um, we've spoken today on neural activity uh, in dementia research. We've heard from researchers working throughout the spectrum of neural activity from single cells through to kind of broad spectrum EEG recordings, and then into the output of all that in terms of behavior. We've spoken about how mouse models may be used to investigate human disease. Uh, and we've spoken about how reproducibility in those mouse models is so important for dementia research and what we're doing. And um, we've had some great tips from our expert dementia guest researchers. Uh, and we've also had a little bit uh, on the spot very briefly at the end uh, about the real hot topics in, in their specific fields uh, and what they hope for in the future. Um, and so if there aren't any final points to make from any of our panelists, um, I'll finish up. Uh, and we have profiles of all of today's panelists on the website, including details of their Twitter accounts if they have them. So please take a look. Uh, there you will find loads of other content, support blogs, listings, articles for dementia researchers, just like you. And I personally can, can really, really vouch for this website. Uh, includes also some really interesting details on funding, which is fantastically put together. Uh, and finally, please remember to like and subscribe in whichever app you're listening in. So thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.